So it's uh, Wednesday, November 2nd. Uh, we're recording this uh, with our friends from TechGC, the best. In the year 2022, TechGC. The best. Here we are. We're here. I got Chipotle on my doorstep. Yeah, we were talking this about it. This whole episode we is an ad. My, ad my phone Chipotle. is buzzing with Chipotle anticipation, so I'm really excited about my <laughs> Chipotle. It's on Did its you way. order? Can we talk about DoorDash for one second? Sure. I love DoorDash, and I use it multiple times a week. I live alone, and I'm lazy. Um, but do they need to text me 75 times every single time I order something? Like when the lady or the gentleman drops off the thing at my door, I get like nine texts and messages in the a lot. and emails. Like, just relax. You know, just, and a photo of the food sitting photo. on your doorstep. And a photo. Shout, and a shout photo. out to uh, a friend of mine, Adam Rivera, who works there in the privacy yeah. at DoorDash. So we should probably have him on and discuss yeah, this critical, I'm a big this critical issue. Yeah, I'm yeah, a big DoorDash fan. I just don't need him using up my entire data plan. But like, <laughs> I mean, like, like all of it. Okay. But it's a but good service. It's a good it, service. So it is, same, man. same with Grubhub and Uber Eats. They're, Uber they're Eats. legit. Yeah. But... I use a mixture of the three, man. So some restaurants are on some, some are on Why other. do you, how do you pick? Yeah. How do you pick? Um, well, look, I find that like DoorDash has the biggest selection of restaurants. I think Uber Eats has mm-hmm. some like kind of particular restaurants that I love. And, um, and Grubhub sort of has like a lot of the fast foodie, like, like not chain Mood. stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I just kind of go to, the, yeah, go to the different ones, man. But in Atlanta, I would say for sure, DoorDash is, DoorDash is the big boss. Here, here's why I think at this moment in time, DoorDash is a little ahead. The group order feature. Oh yes, on DoorDash. Yes, yes. yes. Yeah, Let really good. Pick their own shit. Yeah, yeah. I got it. Just pick I don't have shit. to. I don't have to like be a a, a, a mater d. You know, <laughs> the other apps, you know, dude, I, I, I'm really excited to let people hear this episode because first of all, Daniel is awesome and interesting and runs a really cool company that I think we both yeah. love. Um, but we also talked about some random shit like uh, his time in Japan, his parents as I think he called them vagabonds and yeah. um, and Yosemite Sam came up. A lot, a lot. We covered a lot of ground. He's a good guy. I've gotten to know him. Uh, I'm an advisor to Data Grail, and I've gotten to know him really nice. much better over the last year. And uh, he's very layered person, and I think yeah. that comes out in the in the episode too. Yeah, I really like him a lot, and I think we did. You know, it was it was a good chat. I'm glad we finally made this happen. Yeah. All right. Well, here it is. Are we all sick. I'm sick. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been coughing yeah. for a week straight, man, and like. It's like sinus yeah. energy. My whole family was sick. Yeah, I guess no. it's November, right? Like, you know, it's it's time to take the sickness to our family yeah. and friends for Thanksgiving. And Yeah, yeah, and we got to share the around. love. You know what I mean? We got to share the love. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know what's interesting is like, I, I know this is a privacy podcast, but man, I do all the right things, dude. I still wear masks on the plane. Mm-hmm. I still wash my hands 750 times a day. I try not to shake a lot of hands. I do all the vaccinations. I eat healthy. I go jogging. And I've been sick five times this year. What is happening? Am I falling apart, Andy? Is that what's happening? Everybody's defenses are down. Yeah. Everybody's defenses are down. I think you're you're, we- you're wearing a mask for a, yeah, a, while, right. a long time. And then you're, you know, not as much. And it, yeah. It, yeah. You know, we went to an event in Austin, all three of us. We were together, which was awesome. And, uh, you know, mm. I feel, I feel like... Uh, 
it was awesome. It was great to see people in person and talk shop and, but also like, I feel a little bit like I sort of escaped, you know, <laughs> without getting super sick yeah, there. Yeah, you know? yeah, without getting COVID. <laughs> Same. Yeah. Same. Yeah, I just have a newborn, and so she loves spreading all of the things. It's like, uh, you know, go, goes and sees her mates, and then like, oh, thank you for, for spreading the germs. Well, that sounds like it was a lot of fun. Um, well, before we get into the podcast with our guest, <laughs> yeah. Daniel Barber, the CEO of Data Grail, I want to ask a really important question. I'm about to order lunch from Chipotle, which is critical. What What is your go-to order from Chipotle? Because it's, it's important. I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do yet. Well, my current order would be a salad because I'm, I'm trying to reduce my go. carb intake. Um, oh. But if you're asking me that default question... I would say, uh, you know, it has to be some form of burrito, right? I What's mean, the protein? Like, uh, what, what's the protein? Chipotle, no. Chicken. Okay. Chicken. Pedro, you, you have a lot yeah. of, it's a little spicy. You have a lot of points yeah. on the Chipotle app. I know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a big Chipotle <laughs> guy and, um, same thing. Chicken is my move. I used to love a good heavy mm. burrito, but I can't eat the wheat anymore. I don't, I'm gluten free. So now I just, mm. eat the bowl and I go, but I, I, you know, like, yeah. Yeah, I gotta go bull and like I gotta tell you, man, I appreciate the discipline. People who do keto and like low carb diets, but like I can't live without rice, man. It's just not gonna happen. It's not gonna happen. It's not gonna happen. <laughs> and I don't care. I don't apologize. Yeah, I do the you. rice. I'm gonna do a bowl. It's not gonna happen. Yeah. I'm gonna no, do a bowl, okay. but I do the double fajita veggies and, and whatever protein I decide. Oh, nice. Double Ooh, double up on the fajita veggies because it's uh they're so good. All right. I like fajita well, veggies. Can I debunk a myth? I can I debunk That's a myth? A good here's a here's a here's a prevalent myth that is not true uh cuban people do not eat spicy food in the sense of hot like we add all sorts of seasoning to our food but we don't eat spicy food this is not a thing cuban people do and let me give you a vignette that evidences that my mom uh, uh who was the quintessential old cuban lady tremendous cook m cooked all sorts of caribbean and spanish dishes the best food ever. None of it spicy, all well seasoned, of course, but not spicy. Um, came to visit me when I lived in DC and we went to Chipotle and I ordered her a chicken bowl and, you know, she saw the black beans and rice and thought that looks familiar. She saw chicken and That's thought great, that sounds yeah. right. Lettuce, cheese, all of this is good. She took no salsa. She took one bite of this bowl and was yelling about how spicy the food was and she said you know like she was freaking out because she couldn't handle the fire of the chipotle chicken Whoa. bowl and so um yeah Cuban wow. people don't eat spicy food that's not a thing wow i've never heard of somebody yeah, saying best, that best podcast episode ever yeah yeah, yeah, yeah my mom couldn't that's, handle uh, my mom me. couldn't handle the spice um so and my dad thinks chipotle is spicy like these people just like they don't it just thinks Chipotle spicy. My, my mom and I <laughs> both enjoy very spicy food. And one time we were at the eye doctor together. I think I was in high school. And my mom is one of these people that talks to everybody. So like when she's in line at a grocery, she just makes friends with everybody. So we're sitting there, we're talking to the eye doctor. And she says, we're going to our favorite place to get this really spicy chicken after. And he was asking us about it. He was very curious. <laughs> and uh, it's a hole in the wall place in Baltimore. And He's like, I've never heard of it. And so she invites him to come with us to the chicken place. So we go 
Wait, what? Yeah, she invites the eye doctor <laughs> to come with us. So he's like, okay, it's I my lunch this, break. Man. So we go to the chicken place. Yeah. And this poor man, this is super hot. Like, this is some of the hottest chicken you'll ever have. And this poor guy is just crying. He's crying. Like, he's wearing a suit, you know? And he's just, like, pouring down. And like, I told my mom afterwards we, like, injured oh, the bad. eye doctor, you know? Yeah, man, don't do that. Dude. <laughs> we need him to still be. Yeah, he had to cancel his job. whole day. That's, that's after that. <laughs> All right, let's talk to Daniel. Let's talk to Daniel. All right. Um, we were tried to record this once and everything blew up. So hopefully this won't won't happen again. We'll get the actual it recording says recording, done. So that's a positive. It does. We have we already made really, progress. It was a really interesting. Dis- <laughs> A really interesting discussion about the link between MarTech and privacy. And you started in MarTech, you know, at one of the companies you were at was acquired by Oracle, where Pedro worked. So let's let's dig into that, because I think not a lot of people know, yeah, like, some of the privacy origin with MarTech. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think where we are is an interesting place, right? I think the the experience I had, so, you know, um, obviously now leading leading DataGrail and founding the business four years ago. Um, you know, I saw some interesting things happening in, in 2012, um, during my time at Responsus. Um, and so for those that are not as familiar, Responsus, uh, still exists today, but it's Oracle Marketing Cloud and it's sort of under that umbrella. Um, but in 2012, you know, the brand was, was working with some of the leading marketing teams on, on the planet, right? So folks at Whole Foods, you know, pre Amazon, obviously, and folks at Southwest Airlines and, um, you know, Nordstrom and other brands that we all sort of recognize as leaders in, in the industry. And I think, um, you know, at this time it was mobile was just starting to come into the, the, the picture, right? Um, and you had, you know, display retargeting was also a thing. And so this was, the technology had been around for a little bit long, but sort of cross-platform retargeting started to become interesting. Um, and you could see marketers starting to, you know, increase their adoption of different technologies, right? They were, they were using responses for email um, and responses would send, you know, billions of emails for these marketers. Um, but I think, you know, what became interesting was trying to layer in all of this behavioral data of folks coming to the website and folks using the application, perhaps it's the Nordstrom app, right? And then trying to layer in those different experiences to create a, you know, tailored, personalized experience. Um, it, it was really cool, I would say, at that time to kind of watch marketers try to do new things. But I would say what was also very evident was, you know, privacy was so far away from the picture. Um, you know, there was, there was no position on privacy from the marketing organization at that time at all. Um, and in fact, like, I think, you know, now folks have become more aware in their sort of consumer state what that means, like how our data is being used and they're they're interested to understand. But um, from that experience, that gave me a, a very unique perspective on how this problem has been generated from marketers just using more and more applications with the, the sole desire to create a better experience for the consumer, which inherently is actually a good thing. It's just the the transparency of how those teams would use our information. I think that's never really come to light in the way that it should. And that's really because, you know, it privacy wasn't um, top of mind in, in 2012. 
Can you, it, it, oh, we you know one Andy? thing that I think is super helpful is to differentiate between MarTech and ad tech for the world. Like, can you tell me where you think that line is drawn and what makes the two different from each other? Yeah, so I think I think ad tech is is quite straightforward to define, right? So, and I think it's a good question, Pedro. But I think like ad tech's quite straightforward, right? So companies that are you know running ad programs, they could be publisher side, they could be network side, they could be um, you know specific platforms. But anyone that I sort of think about as running ad programs um, and really operating the ad platform, I would think as ad tech, right? So that's that's a that's an easy separation. Um, on the MarTech side, there's a bunch of interesting things, right? So, um, you know, on MarTech, you think about all of the different channels that someone could communicate with you. Um, that could be email, that could be a push notification, that could be a text, um, that could be, you know, on the website, trying to understand the behavior um, and, you know, trying to run analytics on those, those different interactions, right? So when you visit a website, heat mapping and these kinds of things. MarTech itself has thousands of technologies at this point, right? Um, and if you think about it through the, the B2B lens, that goes even further, right? Because then you have interesting experiences that people are trying to create like Andy's company where, you know, you might have delivery services, right? Where now you're trying to cr extend that experience into the individual's home. And I would consider that still MarTech as well. And so on the consumer side, um, it's it's pretty cut and dry. As you go to B two B, now it's it's even further, right? Where you would have chat services. I would consider that Martech, um, where you could go online and interact with someone that could be real, a real person, or might not be. But even under that context, now you're talking about a software chat, right? Where it's unstructured information. So, like, think about that for a second, right? You could put your social security number in there you could put right after you did that you can put your birthday in there and uh that's kind of concerning from a privacy standpoint right um but but things like that i would consider as my tech was uh responses integrated with blue kai so i think now today it is um, and i can't speak to the intricacies of the oracle marketing cloud i'm not as informed there in in, in how that works today but I think today it is, Pedro, right? You may even know this better than I do. I mean, when I left, there were definitely some integrations. I don't know how closely those products are interwoven, which is, I think, what you're asking, Andy. Um, they're definitely complementary yeah. products. Like, I, I just don't know what the links yeah. connection. I've yeah. been gone for too long. I'm sure I'm sure you too, Dan. So I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but, I, um, it, I mean, logically. That was the, that was the vision, though, right? Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. I do know that Oracle sort of ran those businesses separately, um, but uh, like complementary. Like yeah. these are not the same business. They had different leaders. They 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 were sort of right. organized in different ways. But a lot of the issues overlapped. And this goes to, I think, the heart of your question, Andy. And I'd love to hear what like Daniel thinks about this. Um, like a lot of what we're talking about now in the like ad tech, martech ecosystem is like, uh, you know, the third party data versus first party data conversation. And how obviously, uh, you know, a lot of the regulation and pressure around third-party data use has um, moved focus towards first-party data. Um, like in the MarTech stack or the ad tech stack, like 
back in the days, Daniel, like, did we think about this first party, third party data distinction? And and like, how relevant do you think it is now? Oh, I mean, I know it's relevant now, but I guess the question is not how relevant is it now, yeah. but more so. Did we think about this back then, um, five, six, seven, eight years ago, as much as we do now? And then how important do you think for the future this distinction is going to be the ones that we're making at this point? Yeah, yeah. I mean, 2012, not at all. Right? Not at all, if you right? You met a marketer, a CMO in 2012, um, and I'm just going to throw it out there. I don't know them personally, but if you met the CMO at Nordstrom in 2012, I guarantee that person was probably focused on one thing. How do I acquire as much data as possible? Exactly. Right? Whether it's like data from the Facebook account of someone's behavior there, right? Whether it's location data of where they are using the application. This was all becoming available to the marketing department. And so they were just acquiring data as much as they could um, because, you know, that that gave the ability to run more personalized campaigns, which, you know, at that period of time, that was that was huge competitive advantage, right? If you could run cross-channel campaigns and your competitor was not in that market, it was lights out, like completely um, because the, the technology was new. Now, I think today, to your question, like, are our teams aware of that distinction today and the importance of that distinction today? I mean, I think that's the topic of conversation pretty much everywhere. And if it's not, it definitely should be. Um, you know, it's interesting. Our our CTO comes from Stitch Fix. Um, so she spent, you know, about four or four and a half years at Stitch Fix, took the business public. Um, and then spent time at, at Shopify. So Kathy um, joined us you know, earlier this year. And I think the, the contrast there is very interesting, right? Because Stitch Fix, um, you know, as, as you probably both know, um, is all about collecting the user's information and, and tailoring that experience over time, right? So asking the, the consumer to input their information, sometimes very personalized information. Um, I think what's interesting with that is consumers are actually quite comfortable to provide more information. They, in fact, actually will do that. Um, and the fact that Stitch Fix is public is evidence of that, right? They they will provide more information to get a better experience. Um, and so I think that that model is quite interesting. If the consumer understands what's happening, so it's the experience is transparent, probably pretty likely to provide information. What they don't like, I think, is when, you know, and we've just seen this with Sephora, right? You've got location information of women visiting the Sephora store and the women were not aware that that was going on or they were aware and they wanted to make sure that information was not being shared. That's when people get real uncomfortable, right? And that's third party information that's being collected. And, you know, we can throw this word consent out, but, you know, let's be honest, who's actually reading the cookie banner when you visit a website and acknowledging the privacy policy? 90%, 95% of consumers are not, right? Um, so I think the if consent that, framework and that yeah, idea 95% is, like is generous. Pretty, I think, yeah, pretty yeah, silly. Generous. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's, and that, that's why I think this whole model of like accepting, accepting consent, that's not consent, right? You just visit a website and you click through as fast as you can. <laughs> you're not consenting. You're just trying to visit the website. Yeah, exactly. And that's why yeah. there's healthy debate that's why there's healthy debate over whether that's the right basis for processing for ad, ad advertising. Um, yeah. GDPR really yeah. only gives you a limited number of choices for how that should be. Right. And they've said, they've said right. legitimate interest uh, isn't really available. So right. it's well, limited. Let's not jump yeah. the gun there. They haven't yeah. quite said that. 
but like i think the trend is 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 sort of in that direction to your point andy and like i think everyone acknowledges that we're on some sort of path towards like less legal basis optionality for advertising and i agree with you that like i the the discussion about that needs to be more robust than it is because i'm not sure to the points that daniel is making that like a full consent world for any type of data use is like an ideal outcome always 100% of the time based on the points you guys are making, yeah. which is like, are yeah. people just pencil whipping their way through things because they want to get to an outcome or are, you know, are people really like, is it really arising to consent when you don't read things? Like, you know what I mean? Like the, these, the, right. these questions need to be sort of thought through. And so like how we decide what consent is, I think is a discussion that is also super healthy and sort of yes. underdeveloped, yeah, so which is like, th- yeah, go ahead, Daniel, go ahead. I, I was just going to say like that, and that's where it needs to go, Pedro, because yeah. I, I actually think the market goes to choice, right? Yeah. I think consent as a concept is kind of stupid, to be honest. Like you, you arrive at a website and there's a little checkbox that says, Hey, do you consent to the emails being yeah. received? And you say, okay, yes. Right. And then you don't even read the privacy policy because, right. you know, you check the checkbox, right? But they already have your phone number that they bought from another service. So they've acquired your phone number, right, through another service. And the privacy policy indicates now they can text you. <laughs> That's not consent, guys. Like, I didn't accept that channel. I wanted to choose which channels. I want choice of which channels I'm communicated. Right. You know what the, but, the great but I example think the market will actually go that direction. Yeah, I agree with you. And you know, one of the great examples right now, it's political season in the United States. And every day I get, I don't know, seven or eight texts from political group X saying, hey, this yep. is John from the whatever campaign. And I just wanted to. And I'm like, I don't even know who these people are or what your issue is. But on some email somewhere or some somewhere someday, I consented to something that has given access to all of these political players that I've never heard of, both groups. And, and they're allowed candidates. to text you, by the way. And they just text so me. They that, just that's text actually me. legal. Yeah, yeah. And, they, they just and uh, the, the, not only daily. not like, only did you... here, I'm apparently <laughs> yeah, I got Clarence, three or four Clarence, this morning. Uh, uh, it, it's Jessica with Michigan Action, guys. I, 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 Michigan <laughs> <laughs> I think I th- uh, <laughs> what you the mistake you made was was making a donation somewhere. That's yeah, what sure, you did. but like I don't think that's that's, what, made, that's what you did. <laughs> if I made a if I made a donation Clarence to a campaign, made a donation, though. I didn't make the donation. Yeah, if I made the donation six well, he's, years ago, he's very I don't generous. Think, I don't think my donation from six years ago should lead to a text message today at six thirty in the morning from Kiana with "We vote and we rise." Like I don't know what you're talking about. Why are you texting me at six thirty in the morning? I don't know who you are. And then you reply, "Stop!" And I feel I like hitting stop every to- time, and then I get another text message. Yeah, you're just gonna get more text messages. Like yeah. literally, I say stop, and they reply. Like this is literally what happens. Okay. <laughs> anyway, I, I agree with you that like. Being here's the premise of the point, I think, like being more creative about what it means for users to exercise agency and choice is important for our field and for regulators to participate in that exercise for us to make sure we're empowering human beings to determine their own future and their own outcomes 
as most as best informed and with as much agency as possible. And I wonder if this sort of like consent rigidity that we are hearing all over the place is the best way to out- to achieve those public policy outcomes that I think almost everyone agrees that users should be able to determine their future users. People should be able to determine their, you know, th- their experiences for themselves. How to do that needs to be a more robust conversation than it is, I think. The challenge that we're highlighting is a really interesting one. Having just come from a privacy conference and Daniel running a privacy tech company, I want to ask you about this. I see buckets of technologies now. Like privacy tech is sort of, you know, early on it was nascent. One trust is first to market. That That's a particular set of tools. It's I'm seeing these groupings happen. And so one is sort of like the assessment group, you know, or the risk group, which would be sort of the one trust of the world. Then there's DSAR focused group, people that are helping, you know, stitch together the complexity, especially in a big org. And now the, the next one is consent and preferences. And, and, and it's that way. Are there, are those the three buckets? Or are we missing other? I mean, obviously there's like blurred lines between all of these things, yeah, but are those yeah. the rough three buckets? I think so. Yeah, I, 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 I think you're spot on, Andy. I think, um, I think the 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 manual kind of engagement workflow probably ends here, right? So, like that is a that is a ending of an era. But yes, that's where we began, and I think that's where the market started. And mm-hmm. I think the market is is still accepting that path, but pretty unhappily at this stage. Um, I think the market is needing an integrated workflow and there are some some paths there, right? That's obviously what, what we're working on. I think um, the the last one, yeah, consent and preferences, it is it is the next frontier and there's a bucket of companies trying to solve that. But I but I I think I think we would be naive to to say that we can solve it under the construct of what we are working in today with consent, right? We all just agreed that the current format is is laughable. We get texts, we get emails, you go to a website, no one reads a privacy policy, adding a better banner or adding a a method to stop the text is is not it right like it's got to be some form of unified choice option and you know this is something i'm i'm writing a lot about right now because i think like you know it's going to be where the market goes um but but there's nothing in the market doing that today everyone's trying to use the existing model and try to adapt it to to fit um but we just said that it doesn't work Pedro, do you feel like Meta and companies like Meta that are really large and consumer facing have an advantage in respect in in, with respect to the fact that Meta can re-architect its privacy policy to make it a super interactive experience? I think they did. You guys did that like a year ago, like and, and engage directly with the consumer and give a lot of tools and give a lot of options. Whereas like mid market and smaller companies, B2B it's a lot harder to like create experiences for consumers, you know, and because Meta, Google, you know, others are in a place to, to talk directly to like lots of consumers at one time and, and lean in. Is that an advantage or is that a challenge or is it, I, I think how, like how you look I, at I, it. So, so here's my take. Like every company needs to talk to its users, right. Or it's yeah. like 
main audience. The, 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 it's data subjects, if you will, right? Um, mm-hmm. If you have yeah. a direct relationship with them, that's going to be easier to do. If you have billions and billions of them, making inclusive, accessible uh, surfaces for people to understand what you're doing is really hard, okay? Um, because how I might, mm-hmm. like, just for example, like this conversation we're having is happening a certain way. If my grandma calls me right now, everything about my communication style changes so that she can receive mm-hmm. the information from me. The same thing happens in writing culturally and, you know, and ge- geographically and like, um, uh, uh, across like ethnicities and so it when your audience or your user base is massive and huge communication becomes a multi-dimensional really difficult problem i think the real question you're asking though is i don't think it's easier i think bigger companies have more resources to solve the same problems that small companies right. and medium companies right. also have to solve in the same level of efficiency or face chat you know face scrutiny face enforcement and so like there is some disproportionate capability there if you have the resources and the and the and the talent and the the uh you know the treasure to make all of this happen where if you're just an upstart you know like what's your privacy department look like do you have the you know you might have a data scale right meaning you've got lots of data coming from lots of places but you might not have a people scale yet meaning your employee base might be really small how do you build Mm -hmm. these things from the ground up it's really hard, man. And I, so I think there is some like disadvantage yeah. there, but I don't think the companies are creating the disadvantage, like the big companies against the little ones. I think the rules create like an unequal uh, playing field. Now, some mm. rules a- a- account for that, right? Like if you have less than X amount of users or if you have less than X amount of data subjects from California, this doesn't apply and this and that. But those numbers right. are not that realistic yeah. in some ways. Do they actually even mean anything? is the Fair bigger point. question, right? So, 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 you know, um, let's use an example and I, I won't share our customer name, but like, um, you know, we've got a bunch of companies that have under the CCPA threshold. Do you think the data subjects care? Yeah, exactly. Not, right. Like, uh, you, you, you got someone in Montana that's asking for deletion of their information. Is the business actually going to say no, right? If you're a smaller company, you you can't you can't really say no there i mean you can but you're going to create you know struggles for the brand if you continue to do that right so not just not just the brand not just the brand daniel but like you know you and i are in smaller companies like we can't spend our time that way you know we can't architect systems deciding you know yeah someone in montana doesn't get their information no you just have to make a a company-wide business risk decision and say, got it, we're going to accept it for anyone across the United States, anyone globally, because it's actually too hard and we don't have enough resources to even decide, Andy, to your point. Um, Which actually means, right, so this is what's fascinating, the regulations are somewhat meaningless. It's the consumer expectation that's driving this because someone in Montana doesn't care. They've read one regulation that says GDPR offers this, and they're going to push that line even maybe before CCPA went live. It's interesting. They've probably read nothing, and they probably just are trying to unsubscribe yeah. or just trying to not get That's emails probably right. anymore or don't yeah. don't like an yeah. ad that they saw, and they're just like, right. I th- you know, <laughs> give me the option. You know, give me the, yeah. the choice. So I want to yeah. I want to ask one uh, a bit of a different question like you you obviously um you you were uh from australia spent time in 
uh, other countries. Like, what did that do for you in terms of career path, seeing these issues now? Because I, I, you know, I think it, it, it helps when you've been and done other things, it helps you, you know, understand what you're doing in the day-to-day moment better. But how was that for you in terms of you know, spending time other places? Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate you asking, Andy. My, my, my background is, is, is really odd. <laughs> so my, <laughs> my parents were both, um, both vagabonds, right? So we're, we're, we're talking, you know, teachers in the seventies, um, traveling the world, right. Met the Dalai Lama a couple of times, went, oh, wow. went in, in a caravan across, across Afghanistan, did six months in South America, top to bottom. You know, this is in the seventies, right. When, when you really probably shouldn't have done that, it's probably not a safe thing to do, but they, they just didn't care. Right. Um, and so, you know, th- these are the two people that sort of like shaped my early humble beginnings, right. They're both teachers. So, you know, pretty, pretty poor. Um, and, uh, you know, I grew up actually with just my mom. So my father passed when I was four. And so she continued that journey with me. Right. So I had an amazing experience where we would have students from, um, all through Asia staying with us, um, on an annual basis. And so we probably had, I don't know, north of 10 different students stay with us, um, from all over, right. Um, India, South Korea, China, Japan, all over. And so, you know, I, I lived in Japan in, in 1991 as a kid. So we went there and lived there. And so, um, I then ended up doing my MBA in Japan, um, just because I wanted to go back to Japan and kind of experience that as an adult. Um, my father was American, so I, I lived in Michigan for a period of time. And then I lived in Europe for a couple of years, um, to go to sort of answer your question, Andy, um, this shaped a lot of how I also think about building like diverse inclusive teams right i think that the the comment that you made pedro of like thinking about the user base and how they communicate differently and how that that needs to be taken into consideration because if it's not um it's probably not going to be a great experience for everyone involved um i also just think that like it's a better way to build a business but you know (laughs) who am i to decide right this is just my company there's there's many other companies not everyone has to operate that way um but i but i do think it's led to um also a lot of comfort around adversity right when you when you live in a place like japan it's difficult to live right it's uh you know my my twitter handle is is gaijin dan for a reason right that's that's japanese for foreign person um i was a very foreign person living in japan um and, you know, comfort with, with everything that that means. Right. So, um, and, and welcome, welcoming that, right. Being comfortable with the significant difference between you and the person sitting next to you, sitting on the, the bullet train as you go home and, you know, being comfortable with the, the cultural imbalance that exists there and also embracing it when, when given the opportunity to have a conversation with the person sitting next to you. So it, my background is is definitely an odd path, but it's um, yeah, it's it's led to something that I think um, I try to impart on people as much as I can because I don't know, it's it's been a fun ride. Is it? How long did you live make in higher? Japan? Yeah, two years. Oh my goodness! What, what did you ask, Andy? Sorry. Uh, does it make hiring easier or harder? Um. 
easier, I think. Um, you know, we we have a pretty diverse team, right? We have you know equal gender on the board, the executive team. Um, diversity goes a lot further than just gender. We we have a you know pretty active involvement in trying to bring in folks that are that are different because you you then have you know um, more opinions in the room, right? Which is actually a beautiful thing. It creates better solutions for the customer. And so I think most people agree with that. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that helps with hiring. What Living in a, sort of these diverse places and, and, and hiring these diverse teams, what have you learned about the art of communicating effectively across cultural, I don't want to use the word barriers, but across culture like yeah. lines? Oh, so much. I'd rather we could talk about this over a beer for hours um i'll give you one little tidbit just because it's a fun one and it's 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 japanese right so this concept of nemawashi which is like how decisions are made right um and so and also how you sort of communicate so in japanese culture like this concept of nemawashi it's sort of like the decision will take a long time and it's actually like evident even in the way that you know folks communicate right so there's all of the pretext of what you're trying to say that is delivered for, you know, let's say like 90 seconds, 90 seconds, and then maybe another 90 seconds. And then at the end of the communication, it's we're trying to do this. <laughs> and you're like, oh, got it. Like in, in, in a Western context, that might come at the beginning, right? Like we even have now shortened versions of that where you say TODR and the decisions up the front and then all the context is on the bottom. Uh, this is like the complete other way around, right? And so, you, you know, when you're, when you understand Japanese and you're listening to someone speak and you're sort of thinking like, when are we going to know what's being discussed here? I don't actually know what the topic is. And I've been sitting here for two minutes waiting for the topic to be discussed. And then the topic comes at the end. And you're like, got it. Okay. <laughs> that's like, and, I but can if see you're that being significant. I can see that being that, significant. There's the whole, there's TLDR, as you mentioned, there's don't bury the lead. Yeah. I mean, that's so American, yeah. you know, in the way we, in the way we think about communication, um, oh, yeah. And, yeah. especially in like fast, fast moving companies. Yeah. And some of the things I've, I've used to my advantage, right? So, you know, Japanese have this like beautiful ability to operate under silence, right? They will they will conduct a session over, over tea and you will have the tea meeting, right? And, you know, people will sip the tea and while they're sitting there, there will be 15 people in the room and they will say nothing for two or three minutes. And it's two or three minutes and you're sitting there just like, okay, cool. So we're just, what are we discussing guys? And nope, just get comfortable with that. And in negotiations right now, commercial negotiations, that's beautiful. People, I, I will ask a question and I'll just sit there for two minutes. I'm super comfortable with it. That's interesting. Oh, did we lose you? Andy, no, I think you, you were me? talking, but I, oh, I saw your mouth moving, but I didn't yeah. hear anything. Yeah. Um, I, I, was, love uh, <laughs> yeah I wasn't saying anything substantive. Don't worry. <laughs> Oh, okay. I love that. I love to sit in, in the, I don't want to say, yeah, like sit in the discomfort of silence is a powerful tool. Um, but being the American yeah. that I am, I think of it as like an advantage versus disadvantage thing, but I don't even think that's what it is. What you're describing to me is just sort of decorum. Um, and and yeah, I don't it's think a it's beautiful about, silence. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like a beautiful silence. Yeah. That makes sense. It's one of the things it's one of the things I miss about in person negotiation. You know, back when I was at other companies, big big deals. We might get in a room together and actually negotiate. We don't do that as much anymore. That did you sit there and offer silence? No, but like no, but you can show that (laughs) No, but you can show that you're thinking about something, right? And you can show that you're like, uh, you know, that's hmm, that's a really interesting question or you can see you can read the other person a little bit like poker like are they going to accept this are they feigning that they are going to accept this that i like some of that is lost it's totally lost on on email and and you know lost as well in zoom it's not as easy because it's just harder that way but i miss that yeah same any last questions pedro before we wrap here. I gotta tell you, I'm gonna order some Chipotle in a minute, and uh, I'm gonna yep, eat the heck out of that. I already did. I um, already did. did you? I, I'm gonna order it when we're done. I I, I do want to uh, say thanks to Daniel for showing up. I know we're all sick and have colds, and and we had to fight through this a little <laughs> bit. So I'm glad we did it. Um, no. But look, let me ask one more substantive question because I'm so interested in your company, right. Daniel, and like what it does. And you said something earlier about like CMOS back in the early 2010s in early 20 teens and just like sort of being in like data gathering mode um, and just trying to get as much signal as they could um, so that they could be as effective as possible. The result of that is that there's data everywhere all over the place about everyone. And it's sort of asymmetrically stored in all sorts of disparate systems that don't talk to each other. And it's hard to map. And I think that's where sort of like your team and your company's mission comes in. Like, how do you have the early conversations with your clients about, hey, like you got a mess going on here and like we got to go out and figure out where all your shit is because it's clear to us that you don't know, which is conversations I've been on both sides of. I've been on the like receiving that message side yeah. in previous jobs and I've been on the delivering that message side in previous jobs. So how, how does that play out? How does all that data collection affect how you approach your customers and your work today? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think you you have to lead with third party data there, right? If you're if you're trying to provide a commercial teaching moment for someone, and and to your point, it has to be a teaching moment because you know if 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 you're the the security leader or the privacy leader or the legal leader or the IT leader, you you have some sense of what's going on. And you're trying to do your best, but um, you know if 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 our teams were just ed, sort of. Uh, stating that hey you you have more risk than you you're aware that's not going to land very well right so you've got to use like third party data to kind of validate that i think a nice one that usually stands out right is you know the average opta customer if they've deployed opta for four years right and if we think about opta as you know the default sort of standard of an application that is used to manage the application's security right that's mm-hmm. that's the purpose of it if someone's been using that application for four years, they use 190 different applications. So that company who's deployed Okta has 190 different things that they log into, right? And that's 190 that they know of, right? Because we accept that there is shadow IT, right? Marketing departments, customer service teams, they will deploy technology without the knowledge of IT, security, legal, privacy, right? Um, and so if we accept that, then the numbers probably double that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And there's other data that you can, you can use to support that. And then you can just look at the website of the company and say, look, you've got 200 technologies on your website. I can see them right now. 
Um, and so I'm, I'm aware you're telling me you think the risk is low, but your website says otherwise. That's a pretty strong selling point. Um, and uh, <laughs> I think your point about like awareness is really important, which is I don't know that a lot of companies have like the sophisticated level of awareness of just how much leakage can happen in an ecosystem like what you just described and that goes from super fortune 100 all the way down to like early startup who's just deploying and trying to scale um it's a challenging problem my hope is that like as more rules proliferate that they are sensible and account for the complexity of the tasks that we are undertaking and don't stifle the innovation by creating like an realistic obstacles um but we'll have to see i'm happy to i'm happy that you two are in that fight and i'm happy that daniel you're leading like in building a technology that's going to help mitigate the risk you know like this is the key this is the key okay last question how often do you use that peloton tell the truth (laughs) now not a lot um uh, (laughs) i am doing the stairs at alter park so anyone in san francisco that knows uh the stairs of alter park you will find me out there this morning at 6 30 it was real dark i'm doing that three days a week and then i have personal training two days a week so five days a week i'm beating myself um but yeah this morning was 6 30 on the stairs so i'm doing this less because now we can go outside right it's like i'm doing that more um Sorry. The Peloton nice. yeah. is the club is again. the clubhouse of like uh workout yeah, machines, you, you know. Yeah. <laughs> they had a moment yeah. and it was yeah. unbelievable. It and everyone big. thought it was the yeah. future of everything, and now it's just sort of like their decorations and who the heck uses clubhouse. I go and ride if I want to listen to a book, right? So I'm that weird person yeah. that does the scenic tours. So I get on there and plant myself in a different city and then I put my my uh, my AirPods on and listen to a book and you know be productive. Yeah, that's, that's cool. used to that. And, and shout out I to like Peloton mine. for and shout out to Peloton because people do use it. I'm just being I'm just anti stationary. Yeah, I, I, oh, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I, I like mine. This is why on. I have a beard. I lost I lost the Peloton bet to my daughter. This is why I have this beard. So <laughs> I gotta get back on there. Yep, that's hilarious. Exactly. Yeah, I'm at I'm, 99 I'm for total workouts. Ninety nine. I told it really gets. I got to hit a hundred. I told uh, yeah. my wife, my wife does not want me to have the mustache. Both kids you don't are say. like, you have to have the mustache when you shave it. And my, my wife, Lauren is like, you can't go outside. If you, okay. have, you, have, to be a one, day, you have to do one here. podcast episode with a mustache. Just one, just I'll one. Time it, I'll time it for a Wednesday. I mean, Pedro's got it. You can run it though. Pedro. Yeah, like, I, I feel like with the yeah. you, can do it. you can run that. Should we I, both I, do I'd it? I'd like to see it, Eddie. <laughs> Should we I'm both do it? Definitely not going to do it because when <laughs> when I do a, when I do a mustache, I've done it, and when I have a mustache only, I look like a legitimate narco trafficker. Like there is no, I just look like a sketchy individual. It is not good for my safety on the streets of Georgia. I'm not doing it. Before kids, before kids, we went on we went on a ski trip with friends, and I grew it out, and then I just had this, you know, this you know, goatee food, situation. This goatee, just the mustache that goes all the way down, like this. Oh, the Yosemite and, Sam. Oh, wow. Yosemite Sam and, and I walked, <laughs> I in, I walked in the room someone that had that yesterday like literally <laughs> and he went really close to the screen I almost took a screenshot I was like wow that's uh, amazing and I Lauren took one look at me and she was like oh my god you gotta shave right now <laughs> <laughs> that's true love god man when she's a truth teller that means that woman loves you good for you yeah, um, I, yeah. I never need right. to see a photo of the Yosemite Sam so make it happen Daniel thanks for hanging out uh, with us man thanks Daniel of course Mr. Spine guy